You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. chapter 6. should be Bibles under the chairs. And then on the chairs are these cards, these Get Connected and prayer cards. So we would love to get a prayer request from everybody every week. We would love that. Um, And if we don't have your contact information, we would love to get you connected on what's going on in our church. So uh, there's also these little books that are around. I got a bunch of these. Take these. And maybe it's not just for you, but maybe you know someone that you could hand this to. So pray about maybe taking that free resource with you and uh, it could be a good opportunity to share the gospel or encourage someone uh, who, who needs it. So those are around. Make sure to share those. They're not doing any good in the box. So if you want to take it and think of someone to share with it, that'd be great. I want to start with a story. For the longest time, Abed Ali kept his faith a secret. He knew the consequences he would face if his family or community found out about his faith. Living in the northern part of Bangladesh, Abed Ali is the eldest of five siblings, tasked with the responsibility to set an example for the rest of his family. Abed's life changed when he met Jesus. He had never experienced this kind of love before, and after much thought to it, Abed decided to get baptized. With such a public proclamation of his faith, news spread like wildfire, and people began to talk about a man named Abed Ali who had become a Christian. The villagers did not take it well, and his family, especially his wife, could not accept his faith. Abed's wife became angry, and she would argue with him about renouncing his faith. When his faith remained strong, that made her even angrier. Her anger drove her out of the home, taking her eight-year-old son with her, whom she knew Abed had a special bond with. My wife left me, saying, if you do not renounce your faith, I will not stay with you. I love my son a lot. I never sleep through the night without him. Now it has already been four months since I have last seen my son. They, meaning his family, do not allow me to meet and talk with my son. My heart is breaking for my son. My heart is breaking every day, said Abed. Not only are his parents and siblings against him, but the local religious leaders are also after him, threatening to kill him if he doesn't renounce his faith. They've also revoked every opportunity for him to work. If he tries to sell something in the market, the villagers will kick him out. Abed has nowhere to go, hiding every day. I cannot go home in the daytime. I just go at midnight and sleep for a while. And then just before brightness of the day comes, I leave my village and hide there, here and there. I am a day laborer. I have no work and no food. I am tired and getting weaker and weaker day by day. Even from his torment, Abed remains faithful in the Lord, believing that God would come through for him. Abed says that his persecution has made his faith stronger. I am learning to love people and love the Lord. I am rejected and isolated from all my family and friends, but I believe my Lord is with me. He will protect me. I believe someday this pressure and persecution will stop. I will not forsake my Lord. I will not renounce my faith. I will follow the Lord until I have, while I have breath. You just pray for me continuously. So it's a live story from just a couple of months ago in Bangladesh. And so Abed is a real character, a real person who is struggling because he has become a Christian in a Muslim country. And I think Jesus could relate to Abed in terms of being rejected by his family. That's what we're going to see in Mark chapter 6 here is rejection and multiplication. The idea of your family turning on you, betraying you, not understanding how important uh, Jesus is 
And, and here we have Jesus experiencing this same thing. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we have rejection. Turns out Jesus is not the hometown hero. Think of all of the amazing things that Jesus has done through this book. You would think that when he goes back home, he would be a celebrity, that he would be lifted up, he would have a, he would have a parade in his honor, and that is absolutely not the case. And then in verses 7 through 13 today, we're going to look at how he sends his disciples out on their first mission trip. So if you would look at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, let's actually look at verses 1 through 3 first. So again, in this section, Jesus is rejected. He's, the home, he's not the hometown hero that we would expect. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we see that his hometown of Nazareth is rejecting him. The reject, hometown rejection of Jesus. Look at this. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. This is surprising. This is really surprising. This is such a different response from what we just saw in the previous passage where we had Jairus, the leader of the synagogue in Capernaum, uh, begging Jesus to come heal his daughter. And the, the woman who is, has the issue of bleeding and just wanting to touch the hem of his garment and all of the crowds gathered around Jesus. And then he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and people are questioning him. They don't understand him. They question his authority, his exousia in his teaching, but they can't refute it. Where did he get such teaching? Where did he get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? It's undeniable that Jesus has this teaching with authority that we've seen throughout the book. But they just cannot, they question it, but they can't refute it. And they also question his power, his dunamis, as it says in, in Hebrew, or uh, in Greek. They question his power, but they can't deny it. How are such mighty works done by his hands, it says in verse 2. So both his teaching and his works are undeniable, but they're questioning it. Why? They're questioning his qualifications. He's very familiar to them. They grew up with him. They say these derisive things. Is this not the carpenter? He's not a trained rabbi. He's not a theologian. He didn't go to seminary. Where did he get this stuff? We know where he came from. He doesn't have the credentials. We grew up with him. We know that he's an ordinary craftsman. That's what it means there. A carpenter, woodworker, stoneworker. Um, and in a small town like Nazareth, you would have to have a lot of skills. You'd have to be able to fix plows, and you'd have to be able to repair leaks in houses, and you would have to... And so Jesus is just a general handyman. That's not a derisive thing, but it is in light of, like, where is he getting this stuff? This is not a seminary-trained man. This is not a rabbi. This is not a Pharisee. They're questioning his qualifications. We know. We know how he grew up. We know what this guy's about. And he's the son of Mary. So this could point to two different things why they would say this. The son of Mary, maybe uh, Joseph has died, his father has died. Uh, more likely, because even after a father dies, you often still call them by their father's name. But maybe it's a little bit of a sun, subtle dig, a little bit of a derisive thing that, hey, we don't really know who Jesus' dad is. Could remember there was that, that whole like, you know, like pregnancy out of wedlock. Maybe G Joseph's not really the father. So this may have a little bit of an undertow, uh, undertone of questionable, like, you know, is this guy legit at all? And so they're doubting him, they're questioning him. They can't question his teaching and his, uh, his works, but they just, it doesn't compute. They're too familiar with him. 
We have all four of Jesus' brothers listed here by name. We have at least two sisters, right? And so they're on our side. They're, they're on our side here. They're rejecting him as well. They don't, they don't understand him. And the word, therefore, they took offense at him is the word scandalizome. It's where we get the word scandal. They're scandalized by Jesus. This is such a scandal. This is embarrassing to the family. This is embarrassing to the town that Jesus would come and teach with such authority and that he would do these things. They're embarrassed by Jesus. They're scandalized by him. Who does he think he is to come back home and think he's all that? Doesn't he know his roots, where he comes from? Doesn't he know he comes from a questionable background? Who does this guy think he is? And they're scandalized by him and they're rejecting him. You guys probably all know this feeling. You go back, you meet someone that you used to go to high school with, and it's hard to get out of your mind who they were when they were in high school, right? For some of you, maybe high school is not that far away uh, in your past, and so maybe this isn't such a big Then maybe you meet someone from middle school or someone you haven't seen for a while. It's hard for you to not see them. I know that for me. It's hard not for me to not see them as the 14-year-old that I was, you know, that had the locker next to me. Like, they just get frozen in your mind, and that's what's happening to Jesus here. It's almost like people are coming up to him and goes, hey, I remember changing your diapers, Jesus, right? Just sort of this like casual, this casualness. And so now when he's coming in and he's coming with this kind of authority and these testimonies, they're offended. They're offended by it because they're overly familiar with him. They're embarrassed and ashamed of him. And if you want to, if you go to Luke chapter 4, we have perhaps it's the same encounter. I might, uh, there's some differences. So this maybe was a separate time when he came. He's teaching in the synagogue. He's quoting Old Testament scripture. And then in Luke chapter 4, verse 28, it says, When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were angry at Jesus. And they rose up and drove him out of the town. They brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. They wanted to lynch him. This is crazy. Crowds are following him. He calms storms, he heals diseases, he raises dead girls, and then he comes home, and this is the kind of reception he gets. We see that Jesus' true family is not who we expect. The word scandalon, which is used here, is also the word used for rejecting a building stone. When a builder is building a building and he rejects a stone as not being fit to be built upon, not fit for the building, you scandalize it, you reject it. You, and so this rejecting of a building stone, like Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is going to pick up that same theme, the same idea of scandal in Mark chapter 12 when he applies the same to himself in a parable, that I'm the stone that the builders rejected. And here we're seeing that. We're seeing that in Nazareth. The, the Pharisees and scribes are starting to create pressure against him. Now his own family and his own town is rejecting him. They're rejecting him and his teaching. Jesus' family, if you remember, came to Capernaum in chapter 3 and wanted to take him away because they thought he was out of his mind. So this seems to be that his, even his own family is rejecting him. And Jesus, if you remember back in chapter 3, he says that my true family are those who do the will of God. Remember in chapter 4, when Joseph walked us through chapter 4, that the seed will go on all kinds of soils, but not all will respond appropriately. And we get this surprising, we would think that Jesus' own family would be good soil, and they're not. Jesus' own hometown. But they've become almost so over-familiar with Jesus 
that they can't get out of their heads little four-year-old Jesus. They can't, they can't get out of their heads that this is the kid they grew up with. And now he's coming in like a king with all this authority, and they cannot get this picture out of their head, and so they're scandalized by him. And so I think a natural question for us, especially those of us that have grown up in good Christian homes, is that are we over-familiar with Jesus? Are we over-familiar with Jesus? We've read all the children's books, we've heard all the stories, and it's just sort of like blah, it's just sort of... And so then when we think of Jesus coming in, and he's got authority, and he, he wants to run our lives, and he wants to rule, and he calls us to repent and enter his kingdom... And we all of a sudden go, wait, I've been a Christian a long time. I, I know Jesus pretty well. How dare he do this? Like, how dare I be challenged? How dare I bow to this man? So we have to be careful. Some of us, maybe Christian school, homeschool, growing up in church, all this stuff, all wonderful blessings, good things. But the danger is that we can become over-familiar with Jesus. And then when he comes to us, we can almost be ashamed of him. This big, demanding, powerful Jesus creates an offense they think they know the true jesus and this jesus that's coming in is not the jesus that they wanted and they're scandalized they're embarrassed by him it's also he's beginning to create a stir against the religious establishment and if he's from nazareth is this going to cause problems so he's upsetting their town he's upsetting their their city and it's not they don't want to be associated with him so bottom line are you ashamed of jesus Ashamed to speak of him, ashamed to be identified with him. Or is he your cornerstone? Do you accept him as the cornerstone to build your life on? Or do you scandalize him and go, no, I'll build my life on what I want, thank you. Or the perception of Jesus that I want, as opposed to the Jesus that comes to me as a king. So we just get this surprising rejection of Jesus, and then Jesus returns in kind, verses 4 through 6, with Jesus, really kind of his rejection of his hometown. Listen to what he says in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives in his own household. Jesus uses a double negative there, right? Not without honor. You have to kind of think about that for a second. A prophet, you could just flip it around, a prophet it does have honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So the four things we see Jesus do in response to their rejection of him. First, in, the, in response to their rejection, he speaks. And he uses this common Semitic saying, of a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. This isn't just a normal, this is like familiarity breeds contempt. You've heard that phrase before? It's the same concept, it's just a known Semitic phrase is that as Israel looks back on its history going, man, we've been hard on our prophets. God sends someone to come and speak God's word to them and we treat them poorly. Especially those that are closest to them seem to treat them the worst. We understand that, familiarity breeds contempt. That's why you see such animosity sometimes in marriages or in families, right? This like when you have to like live close to each other, you grade on each other. And Jesus is saying that, man, I am honored in all the different towns. I get a response and I come home and I'm treated just like the Old Testament prophets. Jesus connects himself to the Old Testament prophets here. The Old Testament prophets weren't persecuted and killed by enemies. When God sent people in the Old Testament to come and call people to faithfulness to his word, God's own people. The, their own family members turned on them. They weren't killed by Egyptians and Assyrians and Babylonians. They were killed by their families. No one likes to hear the word of God, especially from a family member, right? Some of you have felt that before. 
or been the cause of that. Jesus accepted rejection as a price of, of a faithful prophet must pay. If you think of the life of the prophets, they had it rough. Like, because if they're a false prophet, they're to be put to death. But if they're a true prophet, God's sending them for a reason because God's people aren't listening and they're going to live a hard life. To speak God's word to people who are rebellious, you have to speak it accurately or else you're going to be under God's judgment. But if you speak it accurately, you're often going to be under the judgment of wicked people. Just no easy, right, easy way about it. So Jesus says, I'm like one of these prophets coming and speaking God's word to a people and they're rejecting me. Secondly, in response to their rejection, he refrains from doing mighty works. It says that he could do no mighty work there, and this is not like a lack of power. This is not like in the movie Elf, when Santa's sleigh crashes, and it just can't run because there isn't enough Christmas cheer. And so they begin to sing the song, you know, you know, come on, don't act like you don't know. They sing so that there's enough Christmas cheer that Santa's sleigh could have power, and he could go and deliver the toys to all the kids, right? Like, it's not like that. It's not like Jesus all of a sudden was like powered down, the batteries were low because they're just this was a draining place. No, it seems like what Jesus is doing here is that there was he was withholding from doing mighty work here um, because Jesus is always intentionally seeking to produce, reveal, nurture, and reward faith. Remember I mentioned that last week? He's always looking to produce, reveal, nurture, and reward faith. And here he sees no advantage to doing a miraculous work here except for he healed a few people. So he's still doing these mighty works. He's still showing compassion to people. He's doing miraculous works, but he won't do the big stuff because there just is nothing here. There is nothing here. He sees no advantage to his mission here. These people don't want him. They're not going to believe even if he did a mighty work among them. And so this, it's, it's crazy because he's on such a hot streak right now, right? Because he, he went across the lake and he calmed a storm. That's a major miracle. He comes across a, le- a man with a full of legion of demons, just casts them out into pigs, right? Then he comes back across the sea and he heals a, chron- a woman with a chronic disease for 12 years, bleeding constantly. No one could do anything about this disease. No one can do anything about storms. No one can do anything about these demons. No one can do anything about death. He raises a little girl from the dead. Then he goes home and the frowns, and he's like, it just comes to a screeching halt. There's nothing I can, there's nothing that Jesus chooses to do here. He refrains. So I don't think this has anything to do with Jesus inability but just going there's no advantage here there's no redemptive mission here and so he just passes which is scary God Jesus is always looking to reveal nurture and reward faith and these people don't believe and that is scary because if we begin to be a church who just does religious things but doesn't have faith we can't expect God to want to reward that if we want God to do mighty works among us, we need to believe him on his terms. We need to come to him on his terms, not be overly familiar with him. They don't believe, and so Jesus chooses not to do miracles here. That's my read on that. Why would in the world would he do anything for these people? They do not honor him. They revile him. They're scandalized by him. And in response to their je- rejection, he marvels. There's only two things in all of the Gospels that Jesus marvels at. People who believe when they shouldn't, like in Luke chapter 7, when the Roman official comes and says, come and heal my servant, I think it's his servant, and Jesus goes along with him and goes, no, I'm a man under authority. If you'll just say the word, that'll be good enough. I don't need to waste any of your time. And Jesus marvels at this Gentile man's faith. He's like, I haven't found anyone among Israel that has the kind of faith of this man to just make a request and to believe my word and go about, go on with his day. 
So he marvels that a Gentile who should not have faith believes in him. And then he marvels here that people that should believe in him don't believe in him. He marvels that people who believe when they shouldn't and people who don't believe when they should, in spite of all the evidence in front of them, those are the things that kind of take Jesus' breath away. Kind of, hey, this is what one commentator said. We never read that Jesus marvels at art or architecture or even the wonders of creation. Jesus never marvels at human ingenuity like Roman aqueducts or roads or inventions. He didn't marvel at the piety of the Jewish people or the military dominance of the Roman Empire. But Jesus did marvel at faith when it was present in an unexpected place and when it was absent where it should have been. Jesus only marveled at Jewish unbelief in Gentile faith. Those are the things that Jesus marveled at. And in response to their rejection, he moves on. He says he went about, he went about the villages teaching. He metaphorically shook the dust off his feet and went to people who will receive him. The Nazareth people were given an opportunity, they rejected it. And so he moved on. Jesus doesn't owe them anything, and he doesn't render judgment on them yet. It's not time for judgment yet. This is an opportunity for grace and invitation, and they reject him, so he moves on. Jesus is happy to offer the gospel to anyone who wants it. So here's a question for us. Is, does Jesus marvel at you? Are you the kind of person that, man, I am amazed that they have faith. Considering their background and what they've gone through, they still believe in me. Or, despite all of the teaching they've received, all the things they've seen, they still don't believe. They stubbornly sit there and reject me. I marvel that they could see so much of Jesus and reject him. Does Jesus marvel at you? Uh, when I was a youth pastor over at South Canyon, there was a young woman that came and sat in my office one day. And man, she was awesome. Seemed like she was really come. She didn't come from a Christian home and uh, set up an appointment with me. And we walked through the gospel and I'm like, man, she gets it. Just the lights were clicking, like uh, lights were clicking. Her brain was clicking. The, her, the lights were coming on. There we go. And, and she was getting it. She was able to articulate it back to me. And I'm like, man, I think this is it. I think this might be the moment where this young lady... 19 years old, might come to faith in Jesus. Like, it was just right there. And then she looked at me with this smile on her face, very polite and everything, and just says, yeah, I, I get it. This is really interesting. Uh, it's not for me. And it was just, whoa. Like, it was just like, like a darkness fell. I don't think she could feel it. But I felt it. Like, this felt like demonic, like a demonic confession. I see Jesus. I totally get what he's done for me. I'm not interested. And I think of all the things, all the mission trips and weird things I've seen and like all these different things, that might be the most like demonic moment I've ever felt in my life. Just this, to see Jesus clearly and go, no, thank you. And to walk out. As far as I know, that's the, it made me marvel. Like she got it and said, no. These people are seeing Jesus and saying no. And Jesus marvels. Let's come at it another way. Think about it this way. Think about the worst thing you've ever done. The worst thing that you've ever done. Jesus would not marvel at that thing. The worst thing would be to see Jesus, to hear of him, and to say, no, nah, I don't think so. Not interested. That. There's no sin in the world that causes Jesus to marvel like someone who 
sees him, and then does not respond. That's the worst of all sins. We saw that earlier, that to resist the Holy Spirit. Danny Aiken says this. He says, The contempt shown by the citizens of Nazareth said nothing about Jesus. Their rejection of him didn't change his identity at all. Disbelieving in God doesn't de-God him at all. Rejecting Jesus doesn't mean that he's still not the Savior and the King, right? Their belief or not belief doesn't change Jesus at all. But it said a lot about them. That when they encountered Jesus, it said a lot about who they were. It didn't say anything about who Jesus was. So now, coming out of this really ominous, surprising rejection of Jesus by his own family, by his own hometown, we then move into a really interesting phrase here. Jesus goes and he goes to the surrounding towns and then he gathers up his disciples, chapter, seven, chapter 6, verse 7 through 13. To this point, he's been telling people not to say anything about him. Now that he has been soundly rejected, he's like, now's the time for a mission trip. Isn't this odd? He sends his messengers into the teeth of opposition. He did that when the demoniac, you remember that? He delivered the man who had the legion of demons. And then the people said, hey, would you please leave? And the man wants to go with him. He goes, no, you get to be a teller, right? To these people? Yeah, to these people. Now, he's been rejected in his hometown. He's like, now it's time for a mission trip. I'm going to send my people right into the heart of this opposition. That's fascinating. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. They're sent with extra authority to extend his ministry. Chapter, verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. If you remember back in chapter 3, when Jesus called his disciples, it says he went up on a mountain and called to, the, called to him those who he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So now he's paying off. He's gathered them. They've been watching his ministry. They've been learning from him. They've been kind of a hindrance to him in some ways, right? They haven't added much to the team right now. And now, after opposition, they're going to be thrust out in fulfillment of what Jesus said in chapter 3. Notice that they're called first. This is Jesus' idea to send them out, not their own. Should not go out unless the Lord calls us in that sense. Till we've been called to Jesus ourselves, then we become his ambassadors. This is Jesus' idea. This is his mission. This is not theirs. It says that he began to send, which means this is only the first of many sendings that are come. In fact, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he's going to say, all authority in heaven on earth was given to me. Go and make disciples of all the nations. So here they're just going to a few towns, but this is just a micro version. This is just an appetizer. This is just a test. This is just the beginning of the big mission that he's going to give to his followers. He's going to give them authority to preach the gospel and go to all nations. Here is sort of a test run on that. Here is the first kind of what they call the lesser commission. So he began to send them a mini version of what will be many sendings. We are continuing to live as sent people. They're to go out two by two for companionship, for protection, but also as legitimate witnesses. Because in Deuteronomy, it says that testimony is established by two or more witnesses. Deuteronomy 17 and 19. So they're to go out and they're to proclaim the message of the kingdom, repent and believe in the gospel. And they're to go out two by two to establish as witnesses. They're to do it together. And he gives them authority. They're not to go in their own authority. They're to go in Jesus' authority. They're not to go with their own ideas or their own message or their own methodology. They're to go with Jesus's. They're to replicate what they saw him do, which is word and deed, word and deed. Serve people, restore the image of God, and preach the gospel to them. They're like authorized ambassadors to a king or a country. 
Whenever there's an embassy in another country, there's an ambassador that's assigned there, and he gets to speak on behalf of the country. He represents the nation there. So they're sent out as ambassadors to this town to go, the king, King Jesus, has given us authority to come and represent his kingdom here. And we've got authenticating signs. It's, it reminds me of Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. When God sends Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, and that message is authorized by God, that he's commissioned by God, and then he's commissioned with miracles and the ability to unleash, unbreak open the hand of the oppressor, right, with these miracles. Likewise, these guys are going to be like little mini Moseses going out, breaking open the demonic stronghold of demons over these people so that they might be liberated, that they might come into God's kingdom. There's a connection there. So they're sent with extra authority to extend his, min- his ministry, and then they're sent without extra provisions in verses 8 through 11 to depend on his provision. So they're sent out with authority to extend his ministry. They're sent without extra provisions so that they depend on his provision. Look at verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Uh, my kids go to school with more than this <laughs> to get through the day, but they're to go just with what they have on, verse 9, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So you get a sense of the urgency of the mission here, right? Be quick and be nimble. Be able to move quickly. This is an urgent mission. So travel light. I want you to be able to move quickly. John Piper describes this as like Christians should live a wartime lifestyle. Uh, We're in a battle, and we should use our resources very strategically, not carry more than we need through this life, so that we can be nimble, we can be quick, we can respond to the call of our Savior and not have too much stuff encumbering us. They are not to secure their own future, but to trust in His ability to provide on the way. Like the Exodus, in fact, if you look at Exodus 12, 11, some of the things that they're carrying with them look just like those people who left the Exodus, like they went in a hurry, they were dressed in a hurry to leave in God's deliverance quickly. This purpose of the second tunic was often to cover yourself. Like if you are on a journey and you might have to sleep outside, you would treat the second tunic like a, like a covering, like a little mini tent. So by telling them not to take an extra tunic, he's saying you're always going to have a place to sleep. I'm going to go ahead of you. I'm going to provide for you. You go on my mission. I will provide for you. You do not have to fear that I'm going to provide for you. So they've got no food. They've got no extra. They're counting on Jesus to come up with something for them, a place for them to sleep and a place for them to eat. He's teaching them something, right? If you go out on my mission, I will provide for you. It's the, it's the role of the commanding officer to make sure that those under his care, those on his mission have the resources they need, right? It's the general's job to make sure that they have what they need to accomplish the mission and Jesus is going to go, you're going to go out and you're not trusting in your own provisions, you're trusting in me. And I'm going to provide for you along the way because I am Lord even over over those towns that have not yet heard of me. I'm still Lord over them and I can provide for you. They're to be completely dependent on hospitality. The people ministered to will support the ones that are doing ministry for them. The resources, in a sense, are in the harvest. Church planners talk about that kind of stuff all the time. The resources are in the harvest. So just go and proclaim the gospel, even if you don't have a building, even if you don't have the resources or the money or the people yet. Just go proclaim the gospel because the resources are in the people. They're there. They're there. Your provision will be provided by God through the people you're ministering to. 
And we get a little bit of a scriptural principle here. That God has assigned responsibility of the hearers of God's word to set aside some of what they have to support the teachers, ministers, and goers of God's word. It's already going to be built in that when they receive the gospel, they're going to care for those that bring the gospel to them, those that teach and lead and go. Galatians 6.6 6 tells us, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Part of receiving the gospel is going to be receiving and caring for those who bring the good news. In 3 John, John tells uh, this church that he's going to send missionaries to them, and he's like, here's your responsibility as Christians for those that come and need to go to the mission field, they're going to stop, they're going to need some help from you, here's your responsibility. He says, beloved, it is a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You would do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. They're going to take the gospel to people who've never heard, and you have a responsibility to support them as if you were supporting God, in a manner worthy of God. So there needs to be a high honor for missionaries high honor for goers and teachers and leaders for they have gone out for the sake of the name third john says accepting nothing from the gentiles therefore you ought to support people like this that they may be your fellow workers for the truth also says in first timothy 5 let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages so what we see here we see here in the mission of god that as he sends out people to go and proclaim, they're to go with radical simplicity and faithful dependence, right? The goers with God's word, missionaries, church planters, people who go out to try to reach out to people should go with simplicity and faithful dependence. And those who receive the word and are blessed by the word, those who send missionaries should be marked by generosity and hospitality. A receiving and ascending with the word, with generosity, with simplicity, with dependence and generosity. Edwards puts it this way. This is a commentator. He says this, true service to Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus. And dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends, despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions, right? If you're one of those disciples, aren't you going, hey, w wait a minute, I have some questions about how we're going to do this. He's like, nope, no questions, <laughs> You go, you trust me, you take my message, you have everything you need. I will provide for you along the way. So many of us are so slow to obey Jesus until we have all our questions answered or until we have it totally secure that it's going to work out, right? And Jesus just guarantees them, it's not always going to work out. In fact, you're going to have to leave towns, but I will provide for you, right? There's just a faithful obedience here that's called for. And he calls them that when you go into a house, don't look to go to a different house, stay there. Don't look to upgrade is the idea. So when you go and someone in that town takes a chance on you, is willing to identify with the message of Jesus, don't dishonor them that when someone else with a better house comes along. Don't look. The mission of God is not a stair-stepping so that you can improve your circumstances, right? It is right that if you go with the gospel, your missionaries, it's good to support missionaries, it's good to, not, uh, to, to be paid for ministry, that's fine, but don't look at it as a stepping stone is kind of the, the idea here. Honor those who first took a chance on you. Honor those who first came to faith under your ministry. Honor them and don't look to try to work your way up. Don't play favorites. Don't treat people differently. Don't look to try to get into the better house. Be, simpl be simple. And then expect rejection. Some towns are not going to receive you. People are not going to like what you have to say. 
And they had exhibit A, right? Jesus went to his own hometown with all of these miracles, with all of this teaching, and some people just will not believe. And he's like, don't take that personal. Expect rejection. If they don't receive you, there's no listening. Cancel culture's not new. You go and you get canceled because of your identification with me. He says, just move on. Do not take it personal. Right? Just move on to the next town. Don't be a jerk. You're good news people in a bad news world. And so when you run into bad news, you don't have to fight fire with fire. Just move on. They are responsible for rejecting me. You don't need to try to fix that and make them right. Like I'm going to post on Facebook about them and then they're going to get it, right? Just let it go. Let me deal with their rejection. You move on, right? It doesn't say you fight for your rights and you, you let them know what's coming their way. No, judgment is coming and I will take care of that. You're authorized to do grace things. I'll do the judgment things, Right? You go, you cast out demons, you give them an opportunity to repent and believe in the gospel, and when they reject it, you move on with grace. You move on, kick the dust off your feet, don't take it with you. Don't take it personal, don't take it with you, their judgment is coming. Michael Card says this in his commentary, Jesus' commission to the disciples does not include the authority to pass judgment on the cities that turn them away. They're to leave that to God. And Jesus even did that with his own hometown of Nazareth. He didn't call down fire from heaven. He challenged them, and then he moved on, and ultimately some of his brothers are going to come to faith in him, right? The story's not over for them. So even if you are rejected in these towns, the story might not be over. So move on with grace, because they might turn. In verse 12, now, this is amazing. We need to not skip over this, verse 12, is that, you know, these guys are kind of knuckleheads at this point, right? These disciples are not they're not given a lot of resources here. They're given a very simple message. They're given some authority. They have weak faith. They have doubts. They squabble with each other. And then look at this. These, this, this is not the A-team that Jesus is dealing with here. But he has such confidence in his authority and the work that he's doing with him. Look at what happens. Verse 12. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Isn't that encouraging? You don't have to be a super Christian to be used by Jesus for ministry. Just go out in his name. He's all right. He's got it. You don't have to try to get it all together yet. You just go according to his call and his authority, and it works. They obeyed. Not bad for some goofy disciples. Oddly enough, experiencing Jesus' uh, rejection in Nazareth set them up for real ministry. Like the rejection in chapter 4 in the region of the Gerasenes before sending the demoniac. And here we're getting the first part of a Mark and Sandwich, because what's going to happen is that we're not going to get the report from these guys until verse 30, and we're going to have the death, the, the murder of John the Baptist sandwiched in the middle of this story. And I think there's going to be a message for us next week that, hey, sometimes God's messengers get killed by the government. <laughs> right? And yet, we're going to see this Mark and Sandwich. To go out in his name, sometimes there's victory, sometimes there's glorious success, sometimes you get your head on a platter. Even Jesus himself was rejected. So we're going to get the beginning of a Mark and Sandwich here that we'll look at next week. Sometimes messengers of Jesus get killed. Repentance was their message with kind and compassionate actions. 
Repentance was the message. Bringing people into the kingdom was the goal. And it was confirmed by deliverance from demons. It was confirmed by healing the sick. They were to come with grace. They were to come with restoration. They were doing what Jesus did. N.T. Wright puts it this way, learning to hear a passage like this and to respond obediently involves learning to listen to the prophetic call of God and to the pain of the present world and to live at the point of intersection between the two. I'm called by God to be an ambassador and there's people around me that are hurting and need the gospel. And where those two overlap, that's my mission field. That's my ministry. And I don't have to wait till I have all the resources. I don't have to wait hoping that it'll all work out. I just go. And if I get rejected, I move on to the next person with grace. And I leave them in God's hands. And when it works out, I rejoice in the Lord. And that's what we're going to see in verse 30. They come and they marvel at what Jesus has done for them. So the essence of ministry, of Jesus' ministry, is word and deed. He preaches the word to them, but then he does accompanying words of compassion. Word and deed, word and deed. Like the apostles who cared for people's needs and taught them the gospel, like Jesus cared for people's bodies and well-being and ultimately for their souls. I love what John Piper says. He says, Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. So Christians, we are authorized by Jesus to do whatever good redemptive thing we can think of, right? According to the scriptures. But the most important thing is not to just relieve temporal suffering and relational suffering and financial suffering but ultimately eternal suffering by calling people to repent and believe. Bottom line, here's just a few applications. These are just sort of, I tried to, I tried to group these in certain ways, but I just think I'm just going to rattle them off to you. First of all, let's beware of over-familiarity with Jesus. We just walk through, we just read our devotions, we just check the box, we just sing the songs mindlessly that we've sung a bunch of times, and we become very casual with Jesus. Let's be very careful not to do that. Be very careful. I think this Nazareth encounter is a real, like, you think even Mary is participating in this rejection. And she had the angel, get, like, you know, at this Christmas time, we're thinking about all that she, <laughs> and even she doesn't seem to get it. Like, we need to be careful with an over-familiarity with Jesus. Let's not lose our awe of him. Beware of rejecting God's faithful messengers. We may just move on. The gospel may pass us by if we just are hard-hearted. We just won't listen. We just won't appreciate the good news when it comes. And we won't appreciate those who bring it to us. Third, to be a Christian is to be commissioned as an ambassador. It's a package deal. You can't become a Christian and not be an ambassador. You can't be right with Jesus and not be called to tell people about it. So to be a Christian is to be commissioned as an ambassador. We're going to see that later on when Jesus gives the full, fuller great commission to all nations. That's given to all people, not just his apostles. Fourth, expect persecution for being an ambassador for King Jesus. If Jesus was rejected, why in the world don't you think you're going to be rejected, right? But he just moved on to the other towns. He just told his disciples, kick the dust off your feet, move on. Don't take it personal. Let me deal with the rejection. You be faithful. And I think some things for us as a church to think about in terms of ministry, Christian ministry or church ministry. Church ministry, Christian ministry should never be done alone. He sent them out two by two. There was no Lone Rangers. All of us should be doing ministry together as a church with each other. We shouldn't try to do it on our own. We're not strong enough to do it on our own. 
Even Jesus didn't do ministry on his own. He had some people with him. And you'll see that in the book of Acts, where Paul and Silas go on a mission trip. Paul and Barnabas go on a mission trip. Um, There's always these going off in pairs or in teams. Christian ministry should never be done alone. Christian ministry or church ministry should be marked by simplicity, generosity, and hospitality. If you want to know what some of our superpowers are, which makes us effective in our ministry, some of it's simplicity. They're to go out with just the clothes on their back, just go, right? So simplicity, I think, is really important. Generosity. They're to rely on the generosity of those who receive the word. So they're expecting a generosity from those that will come to faith. And hospitality. Our whole life is available. Look at the book of Acts and tell me it's not marked by simplicity, generosity, and hospitality. We should be a church that's marked by the same. Christian ministry and church ministry must be both word and deed. We proclaim the gospel, but then we also care for people's needs. We do what we can under the authorization of Jesus to try to relieve suffering. In their case, it was delivering people from demons and healing diseases. We should do whatever we have, whatever we've been equipped with to try to do good ministry, to do word and deed. And then I would like for us to just consider over the next three weeks, because we're going to re- we're gonna have John the Baptist next week. Then I'm going to do a, a special uh, Christmas Eve message. We're going to look at a, a verse from Isaiah and how it connects to Mark and the Christmas story. And then on December 31st, we're going to be back here, and we're going to hear that these disciples, after their mission trip, gave reports to Jesus of what they did, and Jesus celebrates with them and and gathers with them. Um, And so I would love for us to think about the next three weeks over this holiday season and some of the openness people have to maybe Christian things is maybe thinking of ourselves as being commissioned today. That as Jesus commended these disciples to go off into their different towns, some of you college students, you're going to be going off, you're going to be going off to other towns. Try to find a way to share Christ This week, over the next few weeks, as you gather with family and friends, let's consider ourselves commissioned today on a three-week mission trip. And on when we have our neighborhood brunch here on December 31st, let's be ready to maybe share some testimonies, maybe of like, hey, I tried to share the gospel. It didn't go well. I got rejected. Or maybe, hey, I tried to do this really compassionate thing for someone in the name of Jesus, and here was how they responded. Let's think of this text today as our commissioning over the next three weeks to go into the towns that we're around and to try to, under the authorization of Jesus, to share the gospel and do good works for people, to do works of compassion in our neighborhoods and our communities. Can we shoot for that? Let's try to do that this week. Let me close this in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this remarkable story of Jesus being surprisingly rejected by the people who should most get him. And then at the same time, in the midst of that opposition, Jesus seems that this is the right time to send his disciples into the storm, so to speak, into, into ministry to go and bear witness to him. And God, help us to do the same. Help us to not be afraid of rejection. Help us to not be afraid uh, to go with simplicity, generosity, with hospitality, to be open and honest about our faith, to go with intentionality. Help us not to wait till we're ready, um, but just be open just to be sent and God help us to look to do both word and deed ministry in as individuals as families and as churches help us to find those around us who might be open to the gospel might have a need we could meet and help us in under the authority of Jesus to do that and God I pray that if there's anyone in here that has just been ignoring Jesus they just they've heard enough about it God I pray that you would pierce through their hearts 
they would not be like these people from Nazareth, that they would be quick to receive the good news of Jesus. God, we pray that you would help us with this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.